Welcome to episode 854 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Thank you to each and every one of you, and by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller, along with Ben Lindbergh of 538. Hey, Ben. Hi. How are you? All right. Did you watch any of yesterday's games? I did. In between five hours of WrestleMania, I watched uh, the, the Cardinals pirates game in its entirety and then pieces of the other games i made it back from wrestlemania in time to see Jonas cespedes strike out to end the mets royals game really i i was hoping that my attention to baseball during this podcast would be interrupted by people randomly talking about pro wrestling so it's good <laughs> it happens just like i'm there again Yep. If I start singing Full Rider right now, it'll be just like my Sunday. I enjoyed the baseball yesterday. I watched all three games, and, but I did. I kind of found it frustrating to go straight from, in a sense, to go straight from postseason baseball to yesterday because yeah, the game, the Mets and the the Royals game, for instance, was a very you know, like in a sense, it was just as exciting as as a as a playoff game. You know, you had you know the teams starting their uh, their number one or two starters. You had this close game, this really you know phenomenally close game toward the end. You had all this excitement and uh, suspense. And yet you also had a game that was managed very much like a regular season game instead of like a postseason game. Uh-huh. And it is kind of nice to get to the postseason and have managers do things that they don't normally do but that I wish they always would and so to get thrown right back into this long season where they you know have to leave their starter in for a long time and and don't do it like you know for instance the primary that I, I noticed this in the car in the Pirates Cardinals game too where it felt like the starters were left in too long uh, but only too long by postseason standards like if if this were a random August game I would have completely forgotten how the postseason works and I wouldn't have thought anything of it, but you kind of get spoiled in the postseason when you see starters pulled uh, earlier, which is how I would like it to be. Uh, uh-huh. And then in the eighth, in the eighth inning, they left. Uh, the Mets were rallying, and they left uh, Soria in for a while. And there was no lefty in the bullpen to come in and get the Mets three three lefties in a row uh, with the game on the line, and certainly not even any thought of Wade Davis coming in with two outs in the eighth inning and the tying run on base. Uh, it's, it's, I just sort of miss October for just a moment. Like, it's sort of like, I don't know, being taken out of the hot tub and thrown in the pool uh, mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. And well, uh, so, a mere seven months, we'll be back. Yeah, less than that. We're, <laughs> we're a tenth of a percent of the way through this season. It's almost over. Yeah, six months. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I, 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 I wanted to feel like that was a playoff intensity kind of atmosphere last night, uh-huh. but it was uh, betrayed by the lack of Wade Davis in the bullpen. You really need to have Wade Davis warming up in the eighth to give me that playoff intensity. <laughs> yeah, well, you got Wade Davis eventually, and you got a nice showdown with the big Mets marquee signing, and mm-hmm. Wade Davis did what Wade Davis does. So it was a good ending. Yeah, it was. So I've been thinking about the Albert Pujols Cardinals discussion, uh-huh. and I think that I, I've, I've been really trying to reconcile it. And I think that what I've decided is that the question, the very premise that we were allowing ourselves to, to, to think about is, is just unfair. It's just an, it, it, it's a kind of an illogical question to ask. If you take away every team's best move, uh, then they're all worse. And, you know, like, it, mm-hmm. like it's not really fair to, to identify the team's most successful move and then say, well, what if we take that away? How good are they now? Because it's almost tautological at that point. If you if you look at how a team does, but ignore all their good moves, uh, then yes, they don't look like they have as many good moves. And that's true. And I figure with with it is very easy to look at the Albert Pujols drafting and 
uh, conclude that, well, sure, that kind of, you know, they, they kind of got lucky. Like, th- they picked him, which is good, but they also sort of got lucky that he was there for them and, and all of that and that he turned into what he was. It doesn't necessarily show, like, this great prophetic uh, ability to find Albert Pujols's and so like in the in the very specific way of looking at that move, it's hard to say that, yes, the Cardinals showed something with that move that was really worth 100 wins. But like every team's got one of those. Every team's got some moves where you could very easily pull one thread and say, oh, well, they were they were really lucky to have him or they were really lucky that he didn't break or, you know, they were really lucky. Like the Giants, you take away Buster Posey and the Giants don't have any World Serieses probably. And all it takes for them to not have Buster Posey is the Rays spend $50,000 more and take him instead of Tim Beckham or whatever it would have cost a million more. Who knows? But uh, in that case, even though the Giants wouldn't have done anything differently, they have no World Series right now, probably. And you just have to kind of live with the fact that that also could have happened. It doesn't mean the Giants weren't good or that the Giants weren't smart. And I think it's very fair to say that every team's got a move that worked out extremely well for them, and taking away that move doesn't necessarily make any sense. So if there's anything, I would say that I'm I'm pulling back uh, from the acceptance of this premise that maybe the Cardinals lucked into this run. Of course they lucked into it, but every team, it's all a combination of luck and good moves. And the idea that the fact that you could take away the Cardinals' very, very, very best move and they're still a, a better than 500 team over the course of a decade is probably better than you can say for most teams. And they've all benefited from some some fortunate move like that. So to really to take away the Cardinals credit for that, you'd, you'd really fairly have to take away every team's best move and then see how the Cardinals stack up against every other team minus one. Mm-hmm. But you would think that if you could go back to 2003 and rank every team's best move at the time, and that'd actually be a fun article to do in the present day rosters, maybe I'll do that at some point. But if you could rank every MLB team's best move in 2003, or, you know, that led to their 2003 team, getting Pujols in the 13th round would probably be the best move in baseball, right? Because he was the best player in baseball, and they got him as a 13th round draft pick, which is not where you expect to get the best player in baseball. So in terms of a move outperforming expectations, getting Pujols in a middle round of the draft is probably the best move of any move at the time. And so if you took that away from the Cardinals, I think it would hurt them more than taking away any other move could at the time. I mean, yeah. he, he was the best player. So it would. taking away the best player and a guy who was acquired in such an unusual way obviously would, would be a big blow. Yeah, it would. It would in this in this exercise, the Cardinals would probably lose more than just about any other team. Although maybe the Giants at that point. I mean, Barry Bonds was not a thirteenth round pick, and yet maybe his value over his eighteen million dollars salary was even greater. I'm not sure, but uh, so yeah, the Cardinals would would it would bring them closer to the pack. But I think the Cardinals would still be ahead of most teams if you took away every team's best move. Last year, you know, around this time, I did look at every team's worst move. Uh-huh. Uh, if 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 I, I presumed that every team could undo one move that they had made, uh, one trade or one signing, mainly those. Mainly those were the options. And um, I was curious to see how big a difference it would make. And, and really, like, it's the, the one of the, the fascinating thing, or I guess one of the takeaways from that is that every team's got some move that, you know, through no necessarily fault of their own or through some fault of their own, they made that was just horrible, right? Like they, the Ryan Howard signing is a horrible, arguably unforced error extension. I should say it's a horrible, arguably unforced error or through no fault of their own, you know, the Padres trading away Corey Kluber before Corey Kluber was anything remotely, you know, valuable. And those are big moves that cost their teams, uh, you know, some years down the road, I don't know, five ish wins a piece. And, but one of the takeaways was that the Cardinals had none of those. Like there was, you could not find a mistake. You couldn't find one move that they would undo. The closest thing you could find to a move they would undo was trading for Justin Masterson at uh-huh. uh, the trade deadline in 2014 because they gave up a, an okay ish kind of prospect for Justin Masterson and then he left as a free agent. And so they were down one okay ish prospect. 
And that's it. Like the the best you could say is the Cardinals could have one okay-ish more prospect in their system. Yeah. Otherwise, there was simply not a move that they would undo years later uh, that was still in any way harming them. And it was really remarkable. So uh, I guess that's the flip side of this. The Cardinals have been an almost infallible team <laughs> over the last, like they don't obviously don't win every game and they don't win every World Series. But in the sense that you could look at all their moves and essentially not find the mistake uh, was pretty impressive. Yeah. I talked to my wife about fried squid. <laughs> okay. And because uh, I, I really wanted to pin down the the syntax of this. I still had trouble with the syntax of it. And she uh, she and I talked to her dad as well who knew the phrase. I think it's actually a, um, a Cantonese uh, of Cantonese origin. And uh, her dad knew the phrase uh, very well. And so my wife teaches Mandarin to third graders. So she is particularly attuned to questions of uh, syntax. And she says that, in fact, uh, we have identified something that is difficult to teach, this particular syntax syntax of this phrase. Uh, she says there is a syntax pattern in Chinese where something is done to you that is very hard to translate. Uh, she says that... There's essentially this word in there. Like if she were to translate it, it would, she would translate it as he was fried a cuttlefish. But uh-huh. there's no such thing in America that corresponds to the was in that sentence. The, the word is be, be, like uh-huh. B-E-I. She says uh, the word roughly means was, but it means he had it done to him. He was handed the situation of being a stir fried cuttlefish. Uh, <laughs> I, I asked her if, it would be like in the in the sentence "I am become death," and uh-huh. uh, which I don't even know what that like. That's just something that I think I what took from a Werner Herzog movie or something. I'm not sure, but she said not really. So I don't know why I'm telling you that. <laughs> uh, but she says uh, there are a few sentences like that that use this passive voice, like for instance, "I to the book put on the table," or "I to my mom made the phone call." or I to you gave the present. She says it's something that her students struggle with in Mandarin. They always use the active voice instead of the passive voice in writing. It's a recurring thing trying to correct them, and it's very difficult to explain. But she said that you could use it in either, if we wanted to use it in in English, you could either, uh, you could fairly say that Sam was fried squid if he was fired, or (laughs) or the boss fried Sam's squid. Okay. Either way. All right. I could use one of those. You got anything, by the way? Ryan Webb gave up a two-run homer to mm-hmm. Troy Tulowitzki, and I'm now downgrading his chances of getting a save to 25%. Yeah, not real encouraging the way he was used either. Uh, no, and, it was, he was well, it was what, the eighth, and it, they were down 3-1? I think it was the seventh when, seventh when they brought him in. Uh-huh. And yes, they were down. I mean, you know, that's not, that's the, that is the Ryan Webb role. That's <laughs> yeah. how he gets... <laughs> That's how he finishes games that he does not save, is he's the yes. guy that you bring in when you're losing by not too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's the you know fourth or fifth man on that uh, depth chart, it looks like, maybe maybe sixth, Yeah, if they're using him there. Mm-hmm. You saw that the Astros named Luke Gregerson closer? Yes. Instead of Ken Giles. And I will first give the uh, allowance that we don't know the you know, we don't actually know like all that went into this decision. It's there's it's always very possible that there are explanations to any decision that uh, we're not thinking of, uh, that the people involved uh, or the situation involved might be more complicated than we think. However, it is hard not to look at it and think that this is a case of uh, the Astros doing what some other teams have done, the Rays, I think most notably, of using a their best reliever in a non-save role so as to keep him from getting saves and therefore keep him from getting more money in arbitration. That is the most obvious takeaway or the Uh most obvious conclusion, simply because Ken Giles is a player whose wages over the next four years, five years, will be heavily determined by how many saves he gets as an arbitration-eligible guy in those years. Yeah. Um, And with Luke Gregerson, it doesn't really matter whether he gets saves or not. He's got a guaranteed contract. He can get 50 or he can get one. Uh, it won't really affect the Astros, but every save that Ken Giles gets, the Astros will kind of be paying for. And so it it's, I think, reasonable to conclude that that is the math here, especially because Ken Giles, I think everybody thinks, is 
the superior pitcher. He is the guy that they went and invested a, a lot into as far as trading for him. Uh, they gave away a closers type of uh, return for him in trade. And he's the better pitcher. Everybody would choose him, right? If you had one inning um, and the season was was riding on it, you would go with Ken Giles, not Luke Gregerson, correct? Correct. And that is a completely uncontroversial opinion that 99 out of 100 people would agree with. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if we assume that that is why this decision is made, I, again, they're not the first team that's done this. And so I'm not talking so much about this move as the, this trend of moves, but it, it really is this situation where clubs want to be able to use their relievers in the best way uh, possible. They want to be able to use them however they can without being limited by this arbitrary stat uh, and they don't want their closers to be saying, no, you can't bring me in the seventh, I only pitch in save situations. Or no, you can't bring me in in a tie game, I only pitch in save situations. Clubs all wish that they had that flexibility. Managers all wish that they had that flexibility. But the players don't give them that flexibility by being kind of petulant and demanding this specific role and a specific stat. And so we all kind of are annoyed that the culture doesn't allow that. Uh, the player's culture doesn't allow that. But then it feels like teams that do this are encouraging that attitude from the players, right? Like they're making it, they're making it very explicitly a business decision who gets the save. So by essentially telling players that the save is currency and we're going to make business decisions around the save, you have to, you're kind of condoning players saying that the save is a business asset and they're going to demand saves, right? Yeah, you are sort of perpetuating the system. There you, you go. That's you, the phrase. Yeah. If you uh, if you were to be bold and break with the way that closers are currently used and just, you know, use Ken Giles as the closer, but bring him in in non-save situations, that would be a, a better, faster way to destabilize the system. But it would also come with costs and uh, more objections, I guess, or different objections that would maybe be harder to overcome. So this is kind of the easier way to work within the system without really trying to change it? It Well, right. It is, it is trying to make the best of the situation, the best of the system, trying to exploit the system in a sense. It's actually, that's what it is. It's trying to exploit the system as we have it now instead of overturning the system. And I guess that's sort of the tragedy of the commons, right? Is that mm-hmm. you can't ask one team to bear the cost of trying to overturn the system. They are, you know, a team is going to see it in their interests to do that thing which helps them a little bit, even if by doing that, they're perpetuating a system that hurts all of them. Yeah, right. Yeah, the Indians did this a few years ago with Cody Allen. I think they had Chris Perez closing at the time. Mm -hmm. Cody Allen was clearly the better pitcher. Of course, he did eventually become the closer. I mean, most guys who have to wait like this probably do eventually end up getting saves, but they cost themselves arbitration money and you never know when a young reliever is going to get hurt and not have the opportunity to, to get saves again. So, so yeah, it's, uh, it's probably that. Unless there's like a, some kind of clubhouse concern with Gregerson being the incumbent and having been the closer on a playoff team. I, personally, I, I don't think any players would mind if Giles were to unseat Gregerson other than Gregerson. Yeah, I like that's part of the uh, details that we don't know. And yeah. um Although I, yeah, I think that you're right that in general, like the, my, I kind of feel like in situations like this, there is some in a clubhouse, the veterans stick up for the veterans, but only kind of at the initial moment of conflict. Ultimately, they all know who's better and they will complain just as much if the inferior pitcher is closing. And so, yeah, there probably would be some friction initially. My guess is there now will be some lingering friction perpetually if Gregerson isn't as good as Giles is. The A's were basically in this situation a couple years ago where Doolittle was their best reliever and he wasn't closing. And I think when they traded for Jim Johnson, as I recall, I might have some details wrong, but I think there was talk about how Johnson was costing them a lot, but he would help keep Doolittle from getting saves and therefore he would keep Doolittle's salary down. And the A's sort of resolved the Doolittle situation long-term by simply signing him to a long extension that made it moot whether he was going to get saves or not. 
And you can't just say, well, the Astros should have signed Giles to an extension and then freed themselves up to use him however they wanted without having to worry about it costing them money. But of course, uh, it's not that easy. You know, both sides need to want an extension to make it happen. But I do remember a couple of years ago, four years ago, five years ago, maybe four years ago at a BP book signing. Um, and somebody asked me whether the classic closer model would ever fall apart. And we talked about the Johnny Venters, Craig Kimbrell situation in Atlanta. And at the time, those guys were both like top five relievers in the game. It wasn't totally clear at the time which one was even better. Uh, one was from the left, one was from the right. Neither one had the sort of long incumbency of being a closer uh, in the game. Uh, they were both pre-arb, and it seemed like the perfect situation to have tandem closers and bring them in depending on the situation instead of who had the ninth inning. But I remember saying that the key thing is that you can't have either one feel like you're manipulating them. I think that players are willing to accept that the club makes decisions that will cost them money or might cost them money, but they're not willing to accept the decisions that a team makes in order to cost them money, specifically to cost them money. You don't want to have it look like you're doing it to screw them. And with Venters and Kimbrel to make it work, you would have had to have sent a signal to them that one way or another, they were going to get paid. And maybe that meant you give them both extensions or maybe, I don't know, that, that's probably the best way to do it. But but you have to send the signal that this is not about suppressing their salaries and that, in fact, you're very sensitive to the effect that uh, that it has on their salaries. And so, I don't know. I don't know if even without an extension, there's a way to signal to Ken Giles that, you know, you have every intention of him getting paid what he's worth, regardless of whether it's in the eighth or the ninth, and that you, you, you really just truly do want him pitching in the eighth. And there is a case uh, for him in this non-closer role uh, in that the non-closer can be used a lot more flexibly. You can bring him in earlier in the game. You're not kind of bound to this one specific situation when he's allowed to pitch. Ideally, you would want it to be a role where you can use him flexibly earlier and flexibly later. As it turns out now, uh, they can't use him in the ninth inning uh, because he's not the closer, and Gregerson is going to be expecting to save that one inning, one run save um, even though Ken Giles might be the guy that you'd rather have in in that situation. So ideally, you would want to have a role where he's flexible early and flexible late. But, um, you know, if you assume that maybe the Astros do see a benefit to having Giles in a more flexible role uh, and they actually do prefer him as something closer to, you know, like the fireman role instead of the closer, uh, that's well and good. But you have to signal some way to Ken Giles that the decision is strategic and very clearly not meant to suppress his salary. And, you know, the problem is that it probably is meant to suppress his salary. Yeah, well, this seems like a system that maybe will be in place for a few years as teams try to negotiate this. We're kind of in this weird in-between space where teams seem to be dissatisfied with the way things are, but haven't gotten together the the will or the capital or the organization to change it. So at some point, you would think they will. There will be some trailblazer that'll just change the way closers are used, and then everyone will follow because that's how things tend to work in sports, and then they won't have to play these games anymore. But right now we are in between this stage where teams used closers for one-inning saves, and we're perfectly happy to do so, and maybe some brave new future where teams are more flexible in the way they use their pitchers. But right now, this is the, the best way to, to go about it, I suppose. All right. So that's my banter. Mm -hmm. La last, last call for banter, Ben. That's it for today. All right. Well, that's a pretty good show. So we'll just quickly do uh, the topic. The topic uh, today is going to be our BP staff predictions. Hey, did anybody make you predict this year? No, I was just going to say, it. this is the first year. Wow. I, I've, I don't know how long I've had to do projections, but the last several years, I guess I've always been at a place that made me do predictions of some sort, which I always did grudgingly because I, I don't feel like I am particularly good as a prognosticator. It's not like, it's not like my skill set. It's not why I'm employed to do what I do. I know what the projections say, and so there's no way to divorce my own projections from the projections projections, and so whatever I say will be heavily influenced by what they say, and 
probably should be. And I don't think I'm better than projections necessarily at predicting the outcome of a baseball season. So basically I do it because, you know, people click to see what people predicted so they can get mad about it usually. But uh, I never thought it was something that I was especially adept at more so than than anyone else. And if I happened to hit on a non-consensus pick that won, I assumed that I probably just got lucky and, and wouldn't continue to be good. So I'm happy not to predict if no one makes me predict. And no one did. Yeah, this is the first year really since you've been a writer. Yes, probably. you haven't had to. Yeah. So congratulations on that. No I one assume... can pin me down on what I think. <laughs> I assume you have a uh, a secret notebook that you have uh, written all these predictions down anyway, just just between you and the uh, desk drawer. Nope. I, uh, I I guess I I know generally which teams I think are good, but uh, my memory is malleable, and maybe I can convince myself that I thought something that I don't once the season is over. You want to do a uh, last year? You and I did Stompers predictions between yeah, us before the season started on opening day. Maybe mm-hmm. this year you and I should do that again. <laughs> yeah, we can do that again. That'd be kind of fun. Sure. All right. So uh, the rest of us were not so lucky. We mm-hmm. all did predict predictions at Baseball Prospectus standings, World Series champ, and individual awards. And so those are published over the site. And I wanted to know first of all if you found uh, anything in there. Uh, counterintuitive. I guess the the tricky thing about predictions, and I think this is also the case as far as projections, is that they generally follow the conventional wisdom. And so people can just say, well, you know, what do I need you for? Like, you know, like you're just saying what I already know is is out there in the the atmosphere. But then if you somehow get away from the conventional wisdom, then people go, oh, this is a crazy prediction. Yep. <laughs> uh, so, so you can't really, and most crazy predictions are bad predictions, and yes. most and most actual events end up being crazy, right? Yeah. So, like, if you had had Victor Martinez last year, if you'd predicted Victor Martinez, because wait, Victor Martinez it was last two years ago. It was the year that he was like MVP runner up or something, right? Uh huh. Yeah. And then last year he was just disastrous, right? So. In both cases, you would have projected like a 780 OPS going into the season. Uh-huh. And he ended up at like, you know, 970 and like 6, 660 or something like that. And if you had gotten either one of those predictions actually correct, you it would have been incredibly suspicious. Right. Uh, you would have been burned for being a witch. And you probably would have been bad at predicting. Like most baseball predictions that are right, that are counterintuitive, mm-hmm. in, require you to be crazy. Yes. Like you have to, like, they're so far off from common sense Mm -hmm. uh, that only an insane person would have ever predicted anything close to them. Right. And some writers kind of pursue that strategy because people remember the the weird ones that you got right maybe more often than they remember the weird ones that you got wrong. So you could kind of dine out on, on having some weird pick that no one else had that turned out to be right. And meanwhile, sort of sweep all the, all the weird ones that were wrong under the rug. But but yeah, I mean, I, especially in the projection system era where these projections are easily available and well-publicized and in most cases are not going to be so far off from what an informed person who probably looks at projection systems thinks, uh, you know, maybe maybe in the 80s or 90s when you didn't have that kind of consensus. I mean, you still had sort of a consensus, but you could come to your conclusions more independently than you probably can now. Mm-hmm. So then, uh, going back to my question, you have it's a it's a tall mountain to climb to surprise you with yes. a with a uh, with a group wisdom prediction. It's very unlikely that we're going to do anything shocking. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, anything surprise you? Well, I'll just read the. Uh, you can go click on on this article if you want to see the staff predictions. I will link to it, and this is based on I guess thirty eight responses from the BP staff. And just quickly, the the division winners were Blue Jays, Indians, Astros, and Mets, Cubs, Dodgers. I would say the most surprising thing, and the thing that always gets people angry in the comment section, is that, you know, like 36 of 38 picked the Cubs to win the National League Central, which is, you know, lower than 
certainly the playoff odds would say are lower than their probability of winning that division is. But it's kind of a weird thing where everyone picks the favorite. And so it turns out that it looks like it's just this unanimous thing where there's no chance for any other team to win. But that's not really it. It's just that every one person is picking the most likely outcome. And so on the page, it appears to be that no one's even giving another team a chance, which is not actually the case. But yeah. So I guess what surprised me maybe is the Blue Jays, how the degree to which they were the consensus AL East pick, they got 27 out of 38 first place votes. And that sort of surprised me in that if I had been forced to make predictions this year, the AL East probably would have been the most agonizing division to decide on a winner, just because it seems like you could make pretty good cases for four teams to win. And, you know, the Red Sox and the Blue Jays seem like very strong picks. Of course, Pakoda thinks the Rays are the best team in in this division. So it seems tough to identify a consensus team. And so I'm sort of surprised that there was a clear consensus team in the picks. The Red Sox have obviously been a a popular preseason pick the last couple of years that have burned everyone. And so maybe there's just some unwillingness to pick the Red Sox and, and look dumb again going on here. I don't know. But 27 out of 38 is more than I would have expected for the Blue Jays, I think. Yeah. So if you if you go over to the AL Central, you have the Royals finishing in second place with a, a little bit worse than that. Like their average finish was 2.2, 2.2nd. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so the Royals, when about um, two months ago, when I polled the staff to see how many wins they thought the Royals would win uh, before we released Pakoda, because I wanted to have something to... Uh, put the Pakoda projections alongside the average response was I think 88 wins and Mm -hmm. the most common response was 89 and essentially nobody had them below 85 I think one person had them below 85 and then when Pakoda came out or when we had Pakoda like a couple days later I asked well does that change any of your minds and the overwhelming consensus was no I know what I think about the Royals Mm-hmm. And uh, they stuck to those uh, to those predictions. And then a couple months later, when we asked, well, how good are the Royals? It feels to me like these don't reflect an 88 or 89 win team. I yeah. know the Indians are good, but most people don't consider the Indians a powerhouse. Some projections do. Some people consider them the best team in the division. Some people consider them the best team in the league. But it's not like the Indians are, you know, some uh, they're not the Cubs of the AL. They're just no. another good team in a slew of good teams. And Yet the Indians were projected to finish or predicted to finish in first. Uh, the Royals um, were, you know, not. And so to me, this sort of suggests that, like, even though we, uh, even though the, everybody told me that the projections didn't influence them, uh, I think that they did. I think that over the course of a couple of months, they they did actually subtly influence them, and that these reflect a lower, a little bit lower uh, forecast for the Royals than many of these same people would have said two months ago. I I can't prove that. I didn't ask for win totals or anything, but that's sort of how it looks to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's perfectly normal, right? Like it should. I I judge them harshly for not having adjusted their predictions to me two months ago, uh, even a little bit, you know, even a win. Just give it, you know, it is new information unless you think that it's completely worthless and it should influence you a little bit. And so it influenced them a little. That's good. And But anyway, I'm bringing that up because... That goes to your point about the Blue Jays. The Blue Jays are projected by Pakoda to finish third and projected by our writers to be probably the dominant team in the American League. Mm -hmm. The Astros had a slightly higher average finish, but in a weaker division. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would guess looking at this that if I pulled, well, actually I can look at the World Series, uh, but I would guess that well, the World Series is kind of weird. People do weird things with their World Series picks. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I was I would just guess, about to bring that up. I would guess that the uh, that the average writer would have picked the Blue Jays as the best team in the American League, mm-hmm. um, even though Pakoda has them as an 85 win team, third best in the AL East. So that's uh, that's an interesting. It's weird because you do see like I you do see situations where clearly the projections I think have led the writers uh, in a direction. I think that. Our writers, for instance, have the Rays higher than the conventional wisdom does. 
and probably the Indians higher than the conventional wisdom does, and maybe a couple of other, maybe, I don't know, maybe a couple of other teams higher than the conventional wisdom does. And I think that that's probably because, like like you, everybody has seen the projections. They incorporate those into what they think is going to happen. And that is a healthy way, I think, of looking at baseball. And then, But there are some instances where it feels like the writers went their own direction. And um, I, I wonder what it is. I wonder which ones, like what sort of factors go into a writer choosing. Their, I guess probably the most. NL West, right? NL West, the uh, Pakoda has the Dodgers still as the, I guess, second best or, or basically tied for best team in baseball. And, you know, like nine wins ahead of the Giants. Yeah. Whereas the writers have the Dodgers just barely ahead of the Giants. They yeah, have it's them essentially a dead with heat. A, yeah, one point six average finish, and the Giants at one point seven. Yeah, and I I would guess that that has to do with this recurring drumbeat of injuries coming out yep. of Dodgers camp. Which, if mm-hmm. you look at the depth chart and you look at the changing projections, doesn't really do much to the Dodgers. I think it knocked them from ninety four to ninety three. I think, and maybe maybe even that only briefly. Because, you know, the injuries that the Dodgers are dealing with, uh, you know, Grandel will miss a, you know, a couple days, Kendrick will miss a couple days, but it's not like, you know, like you hear injury, but it's not like they're out for the season. Ethier might be out for the season, but they, Ethier didn't project very well to begin with, and the Dodgers have a lot of outfield depth, and who's the other, oh, Brett Anderson, yeah, that one. Uh, hurts, uh, certainly right. the fifth starter, whatever the Dodgers have to do for their fifth starter is hurt by this recurring injuries. But it's, you know, the Dodgers have this great depth. Um, they're not actually losing their best players, you know, assuming that Grandal's only out for a couple of days. And so it's probably, Pakoda would say that it's not nearly as bad as the headlines, you know, sort of imply. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would have to imagine that that's part of that. Because, I mean, yeah, the Dodgers are, that is a very big differential between how Pakoda sees that division and how the writers see that division. Yeah. The the NL, oh my gosh. I had to I inputted all these by hand. Uh-huh. And the NL, like we all know no parody in the NL. Yeah. But like every ballot exactly the same. <laughs> yeah. Like there are there is of the 38, 36 had the Marlins in third place. I think that there were of the 38 ballots for the NL Central, 36 were one of four orders. Uh-huh. They all they all had until the very end, like two of the last ones I inputted. So it, like I was 35 in and of those 35, all 35 had the Cubs in first, all 35 had the Pirates and the Cardinals, two, three in one order. And all 35 had the Brewers and the Reds, four, five in some order. Yeah, right. And that's it. That's the entire. And it was basically the same in the West. I think there were three ballots in which if you set the default Dodgers, Giants, Diamondbacks, Padres, Rockies. Okay. Mm-hmm. There were three ballots out of 38 that had any team two spots away uh-huh. from any of those, right? Yeah. In, in every other ballot, the team was no more than one spot away from that default. And the only three where there was a difference was the Diamondbacks winning. And honestly, I would bet that now all of those three would undo the, that pick because right. of the AJ, the AJ Pollock injury. Pollock. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the NL... East, it was essentially the same thing. The only, the o- literally the only variance in the default Mets Nationals at 1-2, Marlins at 3, Phillies Braves 4-5 was, I think there were two that had the Marlins, one, uh, two that had the Marlins in fourth and one that had the Marlins in fifth. Everything else was, was straight down the line. Mm-hmm. Which do you prefer? Do you like the easily identifiable hierarchy league or the league where everything is a muddle and a mess? Uh, well, I like the muddle and the mess, except that I also know that these divisions are not like we're not going to do that well, even in the NL. Like I, yeah. <laughs> we're going to get things wrong, even with the uh, you know absolute and utter certainty mm-hmm. of these three divisions. There's going to one of these. One of these teams that's winning the division is going to finish in fourth or fifth, mm-hmm. and there's going to be one of these, you know, bottom teams that is going to be playing for the division or for the wild card into the last week of the season, and probably multiple. So I'm not worried about the lack of muddle and mess in the season mm-hmm. as a whole. Mm-hmm. So doesn't really matter. But I, yeah, I mean, you definitely have uh, team entropy is rooting for the AL, right? Yeah, yeah. 
And some other interesting things, the the Twins have the three top AL Rookie of the Year candidates, Buxton, Berrios, and Park, according to these predictions, and yet they are still predicted to be the worst team in the division, which is not an inconsistent position, I don't think, but it's it's interesting, at least, that mm-hmm. they are going to be bad with so much good expected, which is, I mean, that is a fair thing to, to say about the Twins, I think, which is nice for Twins fans, I guess. That's the silver lining. The other kind of weird thing was the Rangers being the second most likely World Series pick, even though the Rangers were not even close to the most likely AL West winning pick. The Only eight people picked the Rangers to win the AL West, and I assume five of those eight picked them to win the World Series, which is surprising, I guess. I don't know if there's something about the Rangers that people think is particularly well suited to the playoffs or whether I don't know the people who liked the Rangers just really liked the Rangers yeah like you could maybe argue that they're a team that will be much stronger at the end of the year than they are at the beginning because mm-hmm. you Darvish will be back and because you might have you know you might have no more Mazzara by then you might have uh you know maybe Jerks and Profar is uh established himself uh, again by then mm-hmm. That's the nice thing about having good farm systems all the time is you can reload. Uh, so maybe they are thinking that. I did sort of feel while I was inputting them that I was being like pranked or that there's an inside <laughs> joke that I'm not aware of. Because uh-huh. <laughs> I, I agree. It did feel strange that the Rangers would be the most favored World Series winner in the AL and like fifth or sixth most likely to win their division. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm not a big Rangers. I, I don't know. I'm not. I I think I was the low man on the Rangers, so that was especially odd uh, mm-hmm. to me. But yes, that was a another odd thing. Yeah, Dallas Keuchel getting no respect. None. The AL Cy Young Award winners. We talked about this on the Astros preview. Whether he's someone we should discount more than the typical Cy Young winner, and it appears that the BP staff feels that way. He is. Uh, tied for seventh, I guess, in the standings. And there were six players who got first place votes for that award, and he was not one of them. Well, slightly as surprising is Sonny Gray, who, you know, they were within the margin of error of each other last year. Sonny Gray could have won the Cy Young, yeah. uh, got votes. And Sonny Gray doesn't have some of the same baggage that Keiko does. You know, like Keiko, I can get why even now, even after two very good years and one extremely good year, you could still be like, well, I don't know. I'd never heard of him two years ago. He's, you know, he's a ground ball pitcher. Those guys, how often is the best pitcher in baseball a, you know, finesse lefty? Well, he's not really that finesse but a ground ball lefty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I could see why he would have to keep proving it. But Sonny Gray, you know, Sonny Gray was a very good prospect, a high draft pick who's been good since his debut, and he's young and ascendant, and there's no reason to think that, like, people would have some bias against him, and yet he also is very low uh, on these, you know, mm-hmm. down, he's basically tied with Keiko, uh, way below, you know, Carrasco, and even below Felix, which seemed odd. Mm-hmm. Sort of surprised that the Mariners got zero first place votes. Yeah, I, I don't know that I would have given them one, but I would have considered it, certainly. And I'm surprised that of the 38 people who responded, not one of them saw them as a division winner and they finished third on average. I agree. I think if, if we'd had RJ fill out a ballot, there's, uh-huh. I think there's a decent chance that he would have picked the Mariners. Uh-huh. I'm not sure, but he mentioned, uh, he mentioned, I think that he would pick them over the Astros, if not the Rangers. I'm not sure. Yeah. But we didn't. No. A number of people, can you, can you, there is, look, there is no explanation other than, you know, the curse of the pundit to have Mike Trout not winning your predicted MVP, right? Right. Like there's none. Like, like <laughs> there's not, there is, it's the same with Kershaw, really. Yeah. It's not to say that he's a hundred percent to win it, but there mm-hmm. is nobody who has got a better chance to win it than he does. He's so far above everybody else starting out. Yeah, And I, you could say that he's not going to play for a winning team necessarily. You might think that he's that he has an uphill climb because he's not playing for a team that you think is going to win. But like the runner-up is Manny Machado and 
of the of the 13 first place votes that didn't go to him, you know, a couple went to Machado, a couple went to Miguel Cabrera, one went to Jose Abreu. So it's not like Correa, bet. Yeah, well, yeah, no, those at least you could say they might be on th- those might be internally consistent because they might be on teams that were projected or predicted to be winners. Mm-hmm. But even with that, like Mike Trout has not been on a winning team in three of his four seasons or a division winning team or playoff team three of his four seasons and yet he's finished in the top two all four years there's just not a you can't you can't make an argument other than well i i don't i just don't want to Uh well yeah i mean that's that's not such a bad argument right because the one time trout won he was great he deserved it but the angels won 98 games and made the playoffs and he has been nearly as great or even greater in other years and did not win the MVP, even though I mean, because the angels were not as good or, or maybe because there was better competition in those years, but largely because the angels were not that good. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if you think that, uh, that trout won't win unless the angels are good, I think, you know, expecting the angels to be bad is very reasonable and the staff as a whole expects the angels to finish fourth okay so that's fair yeah so there's, there's so almost then, nothing trout i mean he, he you wouldn't expect him to be better than he has been in the years when he has not won the award because the angels were bad so you could defend the same thing happening again yeah that's fair then the question becomes there, there's two questions and one is do you do you think we are actually precise enough that you can identify a mvp runner-up but not an MVP winner. Like, can you look at him and go, oh, that guy's going to finish second. And and the, the second is actually significant, that he is more likely to finish second than he is first or third. Uh-huh. And so th- maybe you can. Maybe you actually think that there is something, some intelligent, collective intelligence in the voters that will funnel him towards second place specifically if his team doesn't win. Yeah. And maybe I could maybe I could see that being the case. Yeah, um, like an acknowledgement that he is the best player in baseball, but yeah. he can't win because he's not on a good team. Exactly, and that the voters are actually so refined in their collective technique that they actually can do that. That they that they do have the collective ability to move him, you know, to push him toward that spot. So okay, that seems fair. Uh, my objection is half removed, and so then the second question is whether you think that within that you can actually identify the likely winner. Uh, in the first two years that he lost, it was to Miguel Cabrera, which you could say was fairly predictable. Last year, it was to Josh Donaldson, which was probably not very predictable. I doubt anybody picked Josh Donaldson before the season last year. And so then you maybe you can say, well, congratulations, baseball prospectus predictor. Uh, you have, uh, you have uh, wisely figured out that Mike Trout is going to finish second uh, instead of first, most likely. But now, do you actually have the ability to pick the person who is going to finish first? And if you don't, then your odds are still probably better just going with Trout. But mm-hmm. that said, fine, you have uh, talked me into it. And I should, it's, to be clear, it's not like Trout wasn't the overwhelming consensus pick. Trout got 25 of 38 first place votes and has three times as many total points in this way that we had of counting it as any other player. So we did collectively all agree that Mike Trout is going to be the MVP. Uh, however, I'm I was side eyeing the thirteen non trout picks, uh-huh. and um, and now I will not. My eyes are back straight ahead. Mm-hmm. All, right. Uh, all right, I let's see. I think that's all that I noticed. Mm-hmm. Me too. Uh, I guess the same thing. You could maybe argue that even more criminal than picking somebody other than Trout to be MVP. And maybe even more criminal than picking somebody other than Kershaw to be Cy Young, because at least there is really legitimately fantastic competition in that race. You know, going into the, like there are a lot of really great NL pitchers, and if you think that you know, like I could see, I could see it fine. But the ten people who didn't pick Corey Seager to be Rookie of the Year, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think that there's anything there. Like Corey Seager is the best prospect in baseball. He has a full-time role in a prominent spot on a winning team, uh, and he has already demonstrated fantastic ability at the major league level. So I don't know that there's any argument for picking Trey Turner over him, but voters going to vote. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Corey Seager is also the overwhelming. I'm talking about specific ballots, but as a group, we overwhelmingly pick Corey Seager to be rookie of the year. I don't want right. you thinking that we pick Trey Turner. All right, go. Right. Uh, so a listener named George compiled the current whereabouts of our minor league draftees from the minor league free agent draft earlier this offseason. I have two draftees on active rosters, Blake Wood on the Reds and Jiman Choi on the Angels. You have one Mets reliever, Jim Henderson. I have five players, five other players on 40-man rosters, and you have none. (laughs) However, I only have two players who are not on 40-mans, but who appear to be headed to AAA, according to George's research, whereas you have seven such players. So you do have a lot of players who are a phone call away from the majors. And then I have one guy in DFA limbo, uh, Emilio Bonifacio, who I believe was the first overall pick, right? And you have one player who's in Japan and one who I believe is retired, Clay Rapata. Yeah. So I think we're both doing better than we have in the past. I, I don't know. Just both of us having players on the opening day roster seems like something that hasn't happened before. Jarrett Groob was really good in spring training, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Good I'm going to see. I don't know what his final stats were. I'm going to look it up. <laughs> Jarrett Groob. Led the team in ERA, nine innings, scoreless. Whew, seven strike, seven strikeouts, two walks, and uh, a save. Uh-huh. So I think he'll be one of the guys in AAA. Maybe he'll be the first player called up. All right. All right. That is it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five people who have done so already, David Outen, Pete Kingsley, Stephen Rush, Jeff Gaddis, and Clark Goebel. You can also buy our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, which comes out in less than a month now, May 3rd, although it might ship early if you pre-order it from Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your local bookstore. It's the story of how Sam and I took over the baseball operations department of an independent league team last summer, the Sonoma Stompers, and tried to apply some of our theories to a real-life team. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Contact us at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or by messaging us through Patreon. And get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Play Index by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code BP. We will be back tomorrow. Looky, looky, looky on your first day. Looky, looky, looky on your first day.